Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is Episode 7, Putting Out the Fire with Medicare for All. My guest on Episode 7 is Dr. George Bonefalk. Dr. Bonefalk practiced neurosurgery in Texas. When he retired, he moved to North Carolina to be closer to his grandchildren. In 2017, he became involved with Healthcare Justice North Carolina, the Charlotte Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. He chairs Healthcare Justice's Education Committee and Speakers Bureau and has written several newspaper articles and editorials on Medicare for All. Dr. George Bonefalk, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thank you. It's good to be here. We're going to be talking about fire departments. I want to promise my listeners that we'll explain how that relates to health care, but please tell me a little bit about the history of fire departments. Well, the history of fire departments is more interesting than I ever would have thought, and I didn't know a thing about it until I started looking into how government administered or financed health care might be a good thing for a population. And it turns out that treatment of putting out of fires has not always been a government-provided function. It turns out that in ancient Rome, the wealthiest man was a fellow named Crassus, and around 75 B.C., he developed the world's first fire brigade, and it was a private operation. And the way it worked is whenever there was a fire, he and his men would rush around to it, and they would stand there and negotiate with the building's owner. And if they could come to agreeable terms <laughs> under those circumstances, they'd put the fire out. And if not, the building would burn down, and Crassus would make a deal to buy the property for almost nothing, as you can imagine, and then build something back and oftentimes lease it to the fellow who owned it to begin with. That obviously didn't work out well for most of Rome, although it was a very successful free market, capitalistic, for-profit venture for Mr. Crassus. And things really didn't change for hundreds of years. The, the world seemed to be pretty content with this private fire department system. Now, even in London, when they had their Great Fire of 1666, there were no organized brigades, and that's one reason that fire spread as wildly and widely as it did. And it was sometimes after that that insurance companies began to form, and they would begin to insure buildings for their own protection. They organized their own fire brigades. And the system was that if you were insured, the company would give you a little plaque that you would put out in front of your house. And to me, those seem almost identical to these things that people have now when their house is patrolled by some sort of security system. We'll see those signs out in people's yard. So back then, it was fires. And if a house caught on fire, the brigades would all rush out. And if that house didn't have a plaque on it, they just shrugged their shoulders and let it burn down. And it didn't take too long before folks realized that every now and again, an uninsured house would burn down the insured house next to it. So they figured, well, there's got to be a better way. And it wasn't until the 1820s or so that uh, in Scotland and Edinburgh organized what appears to be the world's first municipal fire department. And uh, that worked out so well that a few years later, he went to London and organized a uh, fire department there around the 1860s. Part of that time, they were all covered by these insurance company arrangements. 
And again, that wasn't an accident. It spread like wildfire to make a bad pun. And in the United States, we didn't have any government-run fire departments until around the Civil War. I don't know if it had anything to do with the Civil War, but it was about that time that the various municipalities started organizing their own. And they just absorbed these private insurance company-run fire brigades into their municipal fire departments. So to me, that's just such a clear analogy to the healthcare situation where we have insurance companies now more and more owning hospitals and doctor's offices kind of the health brigades, and we're realizing that's really not a very efficient way to do it, and that there might be a better way, and the fire departments just seem like a perfect analogy for where we are today with health. So that's essentially the history of them. There's some colorful periods with volunteer fire departments over the years, and that figured in very prominently to some interesting American history in the early part of the 1900s. In New York City, they had these volunteer fire brigades. And they would rush out the fires, and curiously, over a period of time, they became very political. And Boss Tweed, this famous political figure in New York City, Tammany Hall, began his career as a volunteer fireman. And there's an interesting scene in that movie, The Gangs of New York, where there's a fire down there in that Five Points area. And these two volunteer fire groups arrive at opposite ends of the street. They start fighting each other over who's going to put out the fire. And the fire, meanwhile, sits there and burns while they're fighting each other over who's going to supposedly put it out. So that's kind of where we are. I find it to be just a very interesting parallel. One thing you touched on was that it was somewhat of a free-for-all. You could have various fire departments, and they might fight over who got to put out the fire. So if one of those fire departments was able to put out the fire, how did they get paid? Well, there were different periods and and different arrangements. If you're in this period where they had competing insurance company fire brigades, well, then the only one that put it out was the one whose company was associated with the little plaque that happened to be on that building. And I guess another brigade came at the same time. They just kind of watch or something and then go home. In this era of volunteer departments, as depicted in that Gangs of New York movie, they were volunteer fire departments. So it wasn't really a matter of being paid. And that's what I mentioned that became very competitive and political. So I suppose that if you had a volunteer company and they put out 80% of the fires, well, they could perhaps extract some favors from government and things like that. But yeah, it was very much a free-for-all. One of the things that I've heard is that the fire departments would have runners to set people to guard the hydrants. Exactly, yeah. That figures into this same scene in that Gangs of New York movie where a runner goes ahead and takes a big barrel and puts it over the fire hydrant and sits on it just like he's sitting there watching. There are all sorts of schemes that you can imagine try to benefit or disadvantage one group or another. The other thing I've heard is that the reason they had dogs was to protect the hydrants against rival fire departments. Yeah, I haven't heard that. That's that's as good an explanation as any, probably. Uh, It sounds pretty reasonable. So you had these fire departments, and sometimes they were fighting about which ones, or they had the insurance. If there was a house that was burning but didn't have insurance, but was next to other houses with insurance. Did the fire departments just go out there and wait to make sure that the other houses didn't catch fire? Particularly in the olden days, yeah, back in the Roman times, I think that's exactly what they did. Even in this period of the insurance company provided departments with the plaques, I think if they saw one burning down, they might hang around, and if it started setting a contiguous house on fire that wasn't shared, well, then maybe they might do something to protect the second house that had no interest whatsoever in putting out the uh, uninsured house fire. 
So these houses would just burn down. People would lose everything. Absolutely. Yeah, life was tough back then. And as we speak, and I say things like that, I can't help but have images of health care, right? If a house was uninsured, that was tough luck. And that's exactly where we find ourselves with uninsured people here, isn't it? So the analogy is just closer than it might seem. Well, that brings up a good point. So how did people react to this? What eventually happened with the fire departments? Yeah, well, the, the obvious thing, as these whole communities and neighborhoods would burn down, was there's got to be a better way. And maybe it would be better if we organized on a community level some sort of fire department rather than relying on these private for-profit companies that would let the, the rest of the, the, the community just suffer. And so generally, as I mentioned, back in the 1820s in Edinburgh and then in London and then around the 1860s here in the United States, bit by bit, the municipalities said we need to do this as a community and organize as a governmental service that makes the most common sense that helps the greatest number of people. If it removes some profit-making from a few people, the greater good of the community is served by having this as a government-administered and funded system. And did they also do it to also help protect lives? I'm sure. As many people die in fires on a routine basis, clearly development of municipal fire departments had more to do with structures than human lives, but obviously human lives were a factor as well. And they did this out of necessity, correct? Absolutely. Look at London. Had they had an organized municipal fire department in London, this fire probably wouldn't have been as devastating as it was. And so, yeah, I think it just became apparent to people that the old system wasn't taking care of the need. It was inadequate, and there had to be a better way. So it led to a government-administered system. Well, if I would use music sound effects now is when I would have the drum roll. <laughs> and so here's the big question. What lessons can we learn from fire departments and how does that relate to our current health care system and Medicare for all? Oh, yeah, I think that's an easy one. As we've alluded to, it was just the realization that for-profit free market system of taking care of municipal fires was grossly inadequate. And many people were suffering, and a better system had to be arranged. And I think that's exactly where we find ourselves with healthcare now. It's amazing that we have for-profit businesses running things that used to be totally charitable, like hospice. And all things in the health world, we have dialysis, which is chronic end-stage renal disease, is covered by uh, Medicare, even for people under 65, because it's so devastating. So you would think that we would have a system that would certainly look out for those people. But 80 or 90 percent of dialysis centers in the United States are for-profit ventures, which just really doesn't seem like the best way to handle a problem of a population. So I think we have immensely analogous situation in healthcare where we can keep doing what we've been doing and the cost keeps rising and we can't afford it and people are suffering, or we can go to a, not a municipal here like fire departments, but a national, a federal system where the government arranges for the financing, but the simplicity and streamlining of the payment system is so huge that that would generate enormous amount of savings that are far more than would be necessary to expand this safety coverage to the entire community. I guess if you added up all the costs of these insurance company or volunteer or private fire departments over the ages and what it costs to administer them and do all the bookkeeping and send the bills and whatnot, 
and then compare that to what we have now with an organized municipal fire system that takes care of everybody in town, regardless of their situation. It takes care of people who are here legally as well as illegally because you don't want some illegal person's house to burn down your house. And it's the same way with health care, I think. The parallels are very strong, and I just think there's no avoiding the conclusion that a government financed but privately delivered healthcare system would be far superior. Now, that's where the analogy ends, because fire departments are socialized. Everybody talks about socialized medicine, and fire departments are socialized, just like the snow plows and public libraries and a lot of schools and police departments and a billion other civic functions. But in a Medicare for All system, even though the government would provide the financing by collecting taxes and then paying the bills, the system would be privately administered. All doctors and hospitals and other health care providers would be in private practice, as they are now, some in public, some in private. But it's certainly not a government takeover. It's not government control. It's just government system financing to streamline things and give off a lot of cost savings and provide this safety coverage and protection to everybody rather than just a select few. Every country that has some type of national health program, some are single payer and some aren't, and some are socialized like in England. Then you have Canada, of course, which has a single payer system, which is not socialized, which mm -hmm. has private hospitals. But regardless, they cost a lot less than ours does. We pay roughly twice as much as any other country on average. So one of the things that I think it's hard for people to understand is that these systems are much more efficient. They're much easier to administer. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. What was that fellow, Deming, several years ago that did these studies of production and factories and kind of revolutionized automobile factories? He pointed out that the more complex a system is, the less efficient, the more expensive it is. And that's precisely what we have in, in healthcare now with the, all this bureaucratic paper shuffling and approvals and denials and all this other administration that, that's involved in healthcare to the point that the number of studies show that somewhere in the vicinity of 30% of every healthcare dollar is spent on administration. And by comparison, in Taiwan, where they instituted a single-payer Medicare for All-like system about 20 years ago, their overhead, instead of 30% for the entire system, is under 2%. I mean, that's dramatic. It's like it's hard to imagine that any American businessman can look at that and say, yes, let's keep doing that. It's just ridiculous. And uh, on the surface, I think any person who sees that says there's got to be a better way. And while people say, well, yeah, that sounds good, but uh, you know, we can't afford it, and it's going to be disruptive, and we need to have choice. I mean, we'll have more choice than we ever had before because right now, so many people are in very restrictive provider networks and can't necessarily see the doctor or go to the hospital that they want. And with Medicare for all, you have free choice. So there are all sorts of other concerns that I think are, are really ungrounded and kind of basically based in fear. And unfortunately, a lot of that fear is deliberately spread by folks who are currently profiting in the system we have right now, uh, like people in private insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies who might stand to lose a little bit in a single-payer system. But I think for the vast majority of us, it'll be a great sense of relief and uh, peace of mind to have a Medicare for all type system. Well, I certainly agree that it would be helpful for the vast majority of people. Going to a Medicare for All system would actually save the vast majority of people money. They would end up paying a lot less in taxes than they pay in premiums, their deductibles, their co-payments, and their co-insurance. Oh, absolutely. It just drives me crazy when I hear these people kind of say that taxes are going to skyrocket. 
taxes will not skyrocket. Taxes will go up. But as you say, all of your other health care spending will go down. And so in the end, you'll end up spending less for health care than you are now. And there was a recent study that came out of Amherst at their uh, policy research institute, or some name, PERI is the name of the organization. It showed that on average, the average person will probably save around 9 or 10% on health care, as will the average business. And I would think businessmen, when they're looking at health care as a huge driving cost to their bottom line, and they see an opportunity to cut that down by 10%, they would jump on it. So absolutely, taxes will go up, but, but health care spending overall will go down, and people and businesses will save money. Yes, absolutely, and I've actually covered some of that in previous mm-hmm. episodes. It can't be said often enough because so many people continue to raise that as a big bugaboo about going to this government-run system, which is also an erroneous characterization. So I think at every opportunity, we advocates of of Medicare for All need to emphasize that, yes, taxes will go up, but overall spending will go down. End of discussion. Well, the other thing, people talk about, oh, we need to give people a choice of plans, but how having a bunch of insurance plans that limit the doctors you can go to or the hospitals or have the doctors that have to fight for care is giving you more choice. To me, the choice is being able to go to whatever doctor or hospital I want and know that the doctor and I can come up with what we think is the best course of procedure based on medical need, not whether the insurance company will pay for it. Yeah, precisely. And I'm having an ongoing discussion with a very good, very conservative friend of mine who keeps coming back and saying, but, uh, oh, man, I I just think we need to have choice. And the response is so obvious. Well, choice of what? And as you just said, most people don't really care which insurance company takes care of them. They just want to be covered. And so would you rather have choice of insurance companies or doctors and hospitals? So I look at it as you will have choice. You may not have choice of which plan you're on. You may not have choice of which carrier company handles your insurance. But you'll have choice of everything that really matters in healthcare. And that is just, as you said, the doctor and the hospital and other health care providers that you choose, not that your insurance company chooses for you in the interest of trying to get more profits for them. Before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? Well, there are a couple of things. And one of them, in reading about this fire department thing, so one person said, if the idea of having a private firefighting company seems odd to us nowadays, Well, it certainly should, because we've accepted the idea that fighting fires ought to be a public good, and I think we need to come around to the idea that taking care of the entire communities, the nation's health is a public good, too. And there's another interesting development in both healthcare and uh, and firefighting. I just learned about this recently, that after decades and nearly 150 years of community fire departments, municipal fire departments, there are now some private fire departments coming along. And of all people, I hate to give more celebrity to them, but uh, Kim Kardashian and her husband Kanye West evidently had a fire in their mansion, and they had a private fire department that came and put it out. And it seems that some of these big insurance companies are now creating their own fire departments for properties of particular value because they don't trust the government-run ones. This is kind of like this direct primary care and concierge medicine and healthcare. Some people just figure they're special and need to have this higher level of protection. 
But this privatizing, more than necessarily being a, a privilege, is actually, I think, a, a warning sign. It's a sign of, of economic disparity, and there's no question that we have growing economic disparity in the country. And, you know, the concern is that we start allowing these community functions like, like schools and policing and firefighting to become two-tiered with a higher level like first class for the elite and another tier for the rest of us. Well, that really kind of threatens our ideal of the democracy and the republic of everyone contributing their fair share for, for the greatest good of the community. So one author kind of wrote, if we don't fight fires together, then someday we'll all burn together. And I think we can say the same thing for health care. If we don't take care of each other's health as a collective, then instead of burning together, we're all going to go broke because uh, we just can't afford to continue the way we're going right now. I certainly agree with that. George, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. My pleasure. Thank you for doing this. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.